Guys, when I became a Christian uh, in 1970, uh, you, most of you know my testimony that I uh, was visiting a church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, uh, where Jim Kennedy was the, the pastor. And, and at that time, uh, the guy who was the director of music and, uh, at Coral Ridge was this uh, wild dude up here, Roger McMurrin. We became friends in 1970 or 71 or so. Um, and, uh, and kept track, and, and then eventually he shows up in Ukraine and has been living in Ukraine for how long now, Roger? 24 years living in Ukraine, doing this thing over there called Music Mission Kiev, which is one of the most, one of the most unique ministries where widows are fed and where orphans... I mean, they, they go all over the world with this orchestra and choir that is second absolutely to none... Um, and are introducing the gospel to the stands, you know, Afghanistan, uh, Turkmenistan, and all those stands, um, and led by this guy and his wife. And now they've retired, built a house in, in, uh, outside of Kiev and, and lived there permanently. So, uh, indeed, esteem uh, is deserved, and we're certainly glad to welcome Roger and Diana back among us tonight. So, good to see you again. <clears throat> Guys, one quick thing. Um, I, I wanted to make sure that you understand, you know, I've introduced this little, um, this little Saturday seminary thing called Gigi, um, where uh, it starts in June, and I'll teach five courses uh, in June. But I don't want you to uh, uh, confuse that with the introduction to systematics. That will also be taught on July the 16th and the 23rd. I'll, I'll teach that again, too. So that's separate from Gigi, Okay. Uh, Gigi will do its thing, and then if you're interested in being walking into some pretty deep theological waters, then I invite you to sign up and come be with us um, for that on the 16th and 23rd of July. Now, um, back to Galatians chapter 4. Guys, um, last week, my comments were centered upon two words out of verse 24 of chapter 4. Uh, they were, of course, the two words two covenants. Um, I did a, a, a bit of intro for you to covenantal theology, um, but the word that, that I used over and over and over again in that discussion of covenantal theology is the word unilateral. That there are two covenants, as is said in verse 24, and they are both unilateral. They are the, it's the difference between if and therefore, you may recall. It's not a contract, it's a covenant. But the, but the word that I kept hammering is the word unilateral. Um, but but these, this whole idea of covenants has to do with, with um, how God saves a people. Um, from there, that is, having discussed how God saves a people, we must now ask... Now, now that I am his, now that I, now I belong to God through Christ, how am I to live? At that point, ladies and gentlemen, in discussion of that question, you must not import this word into that discussion. That is, how that I, now that I'm a Christian, now that I belong to God through faith in Christ, um, you must not bring that word into this discussion. The word changes from unilateral to the word bilateral. There is a cooperation that goes on between the Christian and, and God the Holy Spirit. 
um, in, in the living out of this new life that I have now in Christ, all right? Um, now, you're going to have to take my word for it, but at this point right here, there is major league controversy in the Christian church today. Um, I, we're not going to get into that converse, uh, controversy. Actually, I'm trying to, I'm trying to guard you. I'm, I'm trying to shield you from that controversy that, that swirls around this whole idea. Um, but here is the question that is before the house. As a regenerate, saved man or woman, what role do I play, if any? What role do I play? Or do I sit uh, idly by in a rocking chair and wait for God to come <clears throat> sanctify me? Now, that's what we're going to discuss tonight. Um, what role do I play, if any? Gang, I said to you last week that grace um, leads us to a life that has a moral shape. The, the indicative, I've used that a lot, the indicative of, I am the Lord your God, that's the indicative, uh, has, it leads or it gives rise to some obediences, some, some imperatives. Um, there is a therefore. Uh, I am the Lord your God, therefore. You see, gang, um, grace makes us debtors. Um, now, Gang, um, there is in the world of uh, theological discussion these days what I'm calling, and this may not be the best term, it is, there is what's called a grace movement. Um, and I'm not sure that's the best title for it, but we'll just use it for our purposes here. But that grace movement is so afraid of anything that smacks of performance. And I get that. I understand that. I don't blame them um, for being fearful of, um, of reintroducing works to a gospel of grace. I get that. But guys, <clears throat> the Bible uses language like this. Uh, they were pleased to do it, and indeed, they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought to, um, to their spiritual, et cetera, et cetera. But I'm drawing your attention to this. They owe them. They ought to. You see, as a Christian, there is some oughts. My favorite, um, uh, there's, there's all kinds of language like that throughout the New Testament. But my favorite is in Luke 17. Do you know that little story about the servant who's worked hard all day? And, and he comes in and, and it says, uh, Will the master then um, uh, say to him, I don't have my glasses tonight, um, prepare supper for me and dress properly and, send, and, and serve me while I eat and drink and afterwards you will eat and drink? Uh, does he um, thank the servant because he did what he was commanded? So you also, oh, thank you. There they are. Um, so you also, that's what that says. <clears throat> I had it memorized. Uh, <clears throat> when, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, 
We are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Gang, my point is simply that the grace movement is uncomfortable with words like duty, ought, owe, um, and, and, and in their zeal to protect grace, they ignore these, these words of implication of belonging to Jesus Christ. Gang, I could show you, if we had time, we don't, where in 2 Corinthians 9, Paul, in his effort to encourage giving, absolutely guilts them into it. Um, Because this is a responsibility, it's a duty, and you're not performing it. And so he just hesitates not at all to outline the the responsibility that, that these people have. Now, guys, all I'm trying to do is to introduce you to this question. What role do I play, if any, at all? Um, okay, that's what I want to try to answer tonight. The Bible is full of words like ought, duty, uo, <clears throat> but is there any role that I play now that I'm a, now that I belong to this Savior, what role is there for me to play? Okay, that's what I want to address tonight. I'm going to do it in a minute, but, but before I get to my, my two illustrations, I want to, I want to. I want to do a little bit of psychologizing. And you know, I'm really good at that psychology stuff, you know. But guys, um, here's what I mean by that. Um, you would agree that we, as, as God's people, are not free from the presence of sin. We'd agree with that. And as long as the law continues to uncover sin in our lives, we are prone to fall back into those old legal views of ourselves. That is, that our relationship with God depends on our performance. So what I'm saying is this. The psychology of the old experience of our old life can take much longer to shift than does our theology. Um, and, and because our psychology does not keep up with our theology, we get confused about the role that we're supposed to play. And more often than not, we, we, def- we go back to that default mode of, of uh, performance means, I mean, good performance, God loves me, bad performance means he doesn't love me, he's not happy with me. We understand the gospel And yet there is this this continuation of the law's influence uh, in us who live so long under um, its condemnation and knew nothing of grace. It's as if we've moved into a new house. It's fully paid for, but we just can't yet think of it as ours. So, there remains in us much that can easily stimulate that, those legalistic t- instincts on our part 
Um, and that is, is what Paul is battling in, in, in Galatia, at least in part. Um, and then, on top of all that, we contribute to our illnesses by choosing to sin. And sometimes the Lord allows the ghost of our dead husband to haunt us. Do you know what I'm alluding to when I say that? The ghost of our dead husband? Do you know the story in Romans chapter 7? The first four verses of Romans 7? Where Paul is talking about our old husband being dead and the old husband is the law? And he says, that husband's dead. You're married to another. But because we have, our psychology hasn't caught up with our theology, because we have these legalistic tendencies anyway, then we go and and contribute to our illness by choosing to sin, and we, 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 we are haunted by the memory of that abusive first marriage. And then we begin to act like nincompoops again. All right, now guys, that's a little bit of the psychology. I'm simply trying to say to you that our psychology doesn't catch up with our theology. But I'm back to the original question before the house. How is the Christian then to live? Listen to me. I may have put you to sleep the first 15 minutes, but you need to wake up now. How is the Christian supposed to live? He is supposed to live by the gospel. Well, ah, that's really impressive, Dr. Young, but I don't have the slightest idea of what you're talking about. <laughs> what do you mean, living by the gospel? Gang, most of us view the gospel as kind of the minimal requirement to get into heaven. You know, you got to believe the gospel, and then you know, become a Christian, and then you leave that behind. I'm saying to you, oh, and then having left that behind, we jump back into this performance default mode. I'm saying to you, ladies and gentlemen, that's why we're so spiritually ill. How is the Christian supposed to live? He's supposed to live by the gospel. And I'm going to give you two illustrations of what I mean by that, and hopefully it'll become clearer then. I'm going to to give you one out of the Old Testament and one out of the New. All right? We got 20 minutes to do this, guys, and it's really important stuff. I want you to go to the book of Leviticus. I'm saying to you, How does the Christian live? He lives out of the gospel. He lives by the gospel. What does that mean? Well, I'm I'm going to try to show you, and I hope in a way that will will encourage you. Guys, I'm in Leviticus 19 and 20. Now, gang, if there is ever a book in the Bible of law, it's the book of Leviticus. Um, This section that we're in, Leviticus 19 and 20, Um, is a section that is specifying all of God's rules. Uh, Look at it. Uh, 1937. uh, And you shall observe all of my statutes and all my rules and do them. He says it again in in chapter 20, verse 22. You shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my rules. And by the way, 
Chapter 18 is all about sexual relationships. Which ones are legitimate and which one are illegitimate. And by the way, there's only one legitimate one. There are, all others are illegitimate. Um, but you've got these sexual uh, uh, rules in chapter 18. And then 19, all the rules. In chapter 20, all the rules. But gang, this is not how you see these passages running. God does not say, all right, you people, you know the rules. Now get out there and, and obey the rules. That's not what he does. Now, gang, we are to obey the rules, yes. But why? To gain some kind of a relationship with God? Oh, no. And ladies and gentlemen, even in the book of Leviticus, you couldn't find that. <clears throat> look, look with me. <clears throat> Am I to obey the rules to gain a relationship with God? Oh, no, no, no. I've already got the relationship with God. Um, chapter 18, verse 30. I am the Lord, your God. 19, verse 2. You shall be holy, for I am the Lord, uh, I'm, I, the Lord, your God, am holy. 192192194194194194194194194194194194194194194194194194194194194194194194194194194194194194194194194194194194194194194194194194194194194194194194194194194194194194194194194194194194194194194194194194194194194194194194194194194194194194194194194194194194194194194194194194194194194194194194194194194194
So the natural implications of belonging to a holy God is that we live a holy life in cooperation with His Spirit to become more like the Savior. Guys, why do I forgive? Why am I sexually pure? Why do I not steal? Why do I tell the truth? Because I belong to a God who is those things. What is it that changes me? Law? No. The gospel, ladies and gentlemen, it's the gospel that gets to the heart. Um, Even Leviticus takes me first to the God who is holy and to whom I belong. And then, having reminded me of that, you belong to this holy God, then the natural implication of that is that I be holy because I belong to Him. But ladies and gentlemen, that was not how you were raised. Let me tell you how you were raised. This is what you heard over and over and over again. Obey, or God's going to smush you. This is really tacky, but that's the Baptist way, ladies and gentlemen. And I'm saying to you that creates insecurities, It creates fear, it creates pride, it creates judgmentalism. Because we begin to compare, how am I doing compared to them? And I'm doing better than them, so I'm proud, and I'm not doing as good as her, so I'm afraid. All right, let let me give you another example. The New Testament one, which I I think is better. It comes out of the book of Galatians, Galatians chapter 2. Um, I've gone over this before, two and a half years ago, but I did go over it. Um, It's a story out of the the life and ministry of the Apostle Paul. Uh, It has to do with a confrontation that occurred between Paul and Peter. Do you remember that? Um, It starts in Galatians 2.11, and it goes through to the end of verse 14. Do you remember what happens? you remember who Peter is? Peter is the guy that has this vision in Acts chapter 10... Uh, he's, he's staying in Joppa, and he's asleep up on the roof, and this sheet comes down with all the foods on it, and God says, you know, I'm cleansing all, I mean, and he sends them to the Gentiles uh, up in Caesarea, um, where he enters the house of Cornelius, the Gentile, preaches the gospel to them, and these Gentiles, they embrace the Savior. He's already had this wonderful experience of eating with Gentiles. Now we're told in Galatians chapter 2 that he's in Antioch, Peter's in Antioch, and some people from James, the head of the church in Jerusalem, the people from James came down, and and, and look what it says. This is um, uh, verse 12. He was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself fearing the circumcision party. This is the guy who had the vision in in, in, in Joppa. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Do you get the backstory, guys? Peter, 
He's the one that led uh, the gospel into the Gentile world. He's had this great experience that Gentiles are just as uh, uh, savable as Jews. And so he's in Antioch and the, a little representation from Jerusalem comes over representing James. And so Peter, fearing the, the circumcision party, he stops eating with the Gentiles. Because as you know, there is a racial divide between Jews and Gentiles. And so Peter, being intimidated by a group of Jews from Jerusalem, changes his behavior and stops eating with them. Now, ladies and gentlemen, here's the genius of the New Testament. How does Paul deal with him? Does he do it like this? This is the way um, Southern evangelicalism would do it. Paul, you know the rules. Racism is forbidden. Is that the way that Paul deals with Peter? He could have. Racism was certainly denounced by the Bible. But is that the way that Paul sought to change Peter's behavior? You know the rules. Get out there and obey those rules. No. Look at verse 14, ladies and gentlemen. Paul is speaking and he says, but when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. I said to Cephas before them all, if you though a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like the Jews? Do you see what he says? Do you see how he deals with Peter? Peter your behavior is inconsistent with the gospel. Ladies and gentlemen, what is it that changes us? What is it that takes us to the heart of the matter? The law? Rules? I got the rules over here. Everybody better conform to the rules. Ladies and gentlemen, that is a denial of the essence of Christianity. Christianity is always an inside-out, not an outside-in. So here, Peter, change your behavior according to the rules. Here's the rule book. What does Paul tell him to do? Peter, you need to go back and review the gospel. Because the thing that will change you, Peter is a greater appreciation and enjoyment of the benefits that belong to us because of what Christ has done on our behalf. Gang, offering you the rules is not going to change you. It might change you temporarily. But the thing that is going to change you from the, inside, from, the, from the inside out is a reflection upon and a grasp of and an enjoyment of All the benefits that are now ours because God has said this. I am the Lord, your God. And I'm holy. Therefore, go be holy. 
Guys, <clears throat> um, the way that Paul deals with Peter is by pointing out to Peter that he's not living in accord with the gospel. Your behavior does not size up to the gospel. Guys, do you know that that's the measuring stick? Do you want to know, for instance, guys, the way you treat people of other races? You see, that's what Peter was doing. Peter was uh, in, uh, participating in a bit of elitism and racism. But do you understand? That's wrong. Not because there's a rule. It's wrong because it doesn't measure up to the to the provisions of the gospel. The gospel is not simply this minimum requirement that we all have to meet so that we can all go to heaven and get a ticket to heaven stuck in our pocket and sprayed with a coat of asbestos. The gospel is the thing that changes our behavior, ladies and gentlemen. The reflection. Um, how about my, my career? The way that you conduct your career. That must be in accord with the gospel. For example, you're constantly pushing yourself ahead of somebody else. You're constantly looking out for number one. How do I change that? Go back and give you a rule? Or do I point you to a savior who denied everything about himself, who was rich but became poor? who moved away from the center stage and was humiliated on my behalf. That's how I get to my heart. And that's the thing that is the fountain of my behaviors. And that's the thing that's got to be changed. And how do I change it? The gospel. I live according to the gospel. How do I spend my money? You know, the law says 10%. Ladies and gentlemen, let me just say this. If 10% is your standard, congratulations. You've just measured up to Old Testament standard. Gang, that's not how Paul deals with the, with the Corinthian church. You know what he says? He who is rich who has become poor. In terms of stimulating giving... He doesn't tell them the law. He points them back to the, to the gospel. What Christ did on our behalf. What about our sexuality? Um, what about your addictions? Let, let me. What about family relationships? Do they reflect an understanding of the provisions of the gospel? How, how do I deal with... How do I deal with and think through my past? You know, <clears throat> guys, um, you know that I don't claim to be a counselor. If you have to come to me for counseling, you are in big trouble. But apparently, some of you are in big trouble. Because people keep coming to me. And I think... Why would you do that? I mean, even your first decision was a stupid one. 
Um, but I, I said that to say this. My biggest counseling challenge is to help people deal with shame. So how do I do it? What do I tell them? <clears throat> well, if you'll, if you'll go to church more, if you'll read your Bible some more, then that, you know, that shame will slowly trickle away. No. Here's how you deal with shame. You say this. Quoting Leviticus 18, 19, and 20. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the house of bondage. You don't need to live like that anymore. How do you deal with shame? You go back to the gospel. You know, some of you have been taught that, yeah, we enter the kingdom, we become Christians by the gospel, but then we want to go on to, you know, we want to go on to um, uh, deeper matters, you know, uh, more serious theology. Ladies and gentlemen, I love serious theology. I teach it twice a year called an introduction to systematic theology. And I would love to have you come this summer if you've never come. But do you know what I teach for eight hours in the systematics course? I teach you how to understand the gospel. I tell you the grand and because, <clears throat> very frankly, the Christian third church thinks it's something like this when it's really something like this. And that's what deeper theology gives you. Not something so that you can bash Arminians. It gives you a greater love of the gospel and the God that performed that work to deliver you from bondage. And that is what changes you. I don't go after your outsides. I go after your insides. And what is it that can carry us to the insides? The law? <clears throat> no. The beauties and the perfections of the gospel. <clears throat> so, I come to Christ. I come to Christ as a result of hearing what Jesus Christ has done for me. That's called the gospel. This great unilateral act of God to bring me to faith. And now I'm His. Now by the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit, I've been made brand new. And God looks at me and says, I am the Lord your God. And here are the implications of that. Because you see, Jimmy, I'm a holy God. And you belong to me. Then now you go live a holy life. So, God come save me in this grand sovereign act of grace. Brings me to himself. Now I'm new. And now this unilateral becomes a bilateral. 
How do I live? <clears throat> what is the role that I am to play? I feed off the gospel and cooperate with God the Holy Spirit who now dwells within me. Pursuing holiness because it's a reflection of the God to whom I belong. That's just glorious stuff, guys. Not because I said it, but because it's, it's the message of this book. Our Father, I do pray that you'd use my vain babblings to, um, to show your people how they are supposed to manage their own flesh and how are we supposed to make progress how are we supposed to change how are we supposed to deal with our past and the events that are so full of shame that we want nobody to know about how do we deal with our own sexuality and our careers and our money and and our family relationships how is it how is it how is it supposed to be done, for heaven's sakes? Is there a rule book? Father, would you teach us over and over again the great beauties of the provisions that you have made for your people in the finished and accomplished work of Jesus Christ? <coughs> would you use the gospel to change your people into the likeness of Jesus Christ? And we pray, of course, in his name. Amen.